Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. All right. Good day, Draft Board fans. The <laughs> three of you that are out there. <laughs> no, it's got to be more than that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's probably, a, hopefully, like, double digits. But, you know, all that aside... I'm David, he's Tyson. Y'all know the drill by now, unless you just got started with our podcast. And If you are, hey, welcome. Absolutely. And there's a lot going on in the sports world right now. College Football National Championship just took place this next Monday. NFL playoffs start this next weekend. And we have hit the second half of the NBA and NHL seasons, which is always the better and more interesting half. (laughs) And not only that, but the extremely embattled and controversial Beijing Winter Olympics are about three weeks away, which, man, that is... That's close. That's close, and I, honestly, I still have mixed feelings about this one, but uh, that'll be a conversation for another day. Y'all know that we like to start with a feel-good story, and we're going to start with one that's been heavily covered, the national championship, and we're not going to go too much into detail on that just because there are so many great college football journalists and publications that have thoroughly documented Georgia's 33-18 win over Alabama Mm -hmm. in the biggest game of them all on the varsity scene, but... Just for the uninitiated or those who don't follow football, it's worth mentioning that the Georgia Bulldogs had not won a national championship since 1980. So they ended a 41-year drought. And I I know you feel the same way. I like parody, even though there's not really a ton of parody in professional sports, but I like it whenever we can kind of find a little bit of it. And as well as in college sports, it's it's tough to find parody like after all the alabama crimson tide again if you're uninitiated seven college football playoff appearances in the eight years since this current postseason format was first established they have won three national championships in those uh past eight years 2015 2017 and 2020 and so Even though I will bandwagon and roll tide all day long, Mm -hmm. I really wanted Georgia to win, as do a lot of people, as did a lot of people, and it was great to see them end that 41-year drought, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really good to see, you know, like Nick Saban in Alabama, they've been so good for so long, like, other than, I think, his first year at Alabama, which would have been 2008, Every three years since 2009, Alabama has won a national championship. Wow. Which is absolutely insane to think about when you you, you can be at school for three or four years. Nick Saban can literally walk into a student's like bedroom or living room and say, if you come to play for me in Alabama, you will win a national championship. And no other coach can ever make that promise. But Nick Saban in Alabama, they've been so good. They're always tops of the recruiting classes every year. They get the best athletes. And college football, it's really hard to find those, you know, rags to riches stories. But I think that, you know, Georgia, they've been a good program for a long time. They actually played Nick Saban in the uh, college football playoff uh, national championship a few years ago. But that was with Tua Tungvaloa and Devonta Smith connecting on the game-winning touchdown. I think that was in 2017, wasn't it, when they were both true freshmen? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Georgia, they've they've been a great football program for many years. They're a really good uh, program. They've been really good in the SEC for many years. 
And I think it's just great for them to be able to reward a great season, a great program with a national championship victory. Yes, and not only that, but they really they really picked themselves up off the mat after Alabama knocked them flat in the SEC championship. Uh, Georgia, in case you didn't know, had an almost historically good defense this season, and they were strangling teams and holding them to, like, single digits and all out of that throughout the, the season, and Alabama went in and thumped them 41-24 in the SEC championship, which is the, the conference title game before the top-tier college football playoff begins. And Georgia's defense, I really liked to see them rebound, holding Alabama to 18 points, although the injury of number one receiver Jamison Williams had something to do with that. And it was also nice to see an underdog like Georgia quarterback Stetson Bennett the fourth breakthrough and again not gonna get into too much detail but suffice to say nobody really wanted him coming out of high school he was a walk-on which means that he didn't get a scholarship while most prestigious college football playoffs get uh, players not playoffs rather (laughs) they get scholarships which means that they have a lot of financial pressure taken off their shoulders but Stetson Bennett didn't get this He actually left Georgia for a few years and played in junior college and played incredibly well. And ultimately, he proved himself to be a national championship winning quarterback. Now, obviously, I don't think I don't think anyone would say that he's the MVP in the Georgia defense. Really, they don't win that game without the defense coming back and and holding Alabama in check. But the thing is, is that both of. Bennett's touchdown passes came in the fourth quarter, and the first one was this really pretty 40-yard bomb Mm -hmm. that came shortly after he fumbled the ball trying to throw it away uh, from a sack, and it was essentially miraculously recovered by an Alabama defender one centimeter before he stepped out of bounds, and Stetson didn't let that rattle him. He said in all his post-game interviews, I'm not going to let it end like this, essentially, and he didn't, and you know, sometimes it's not just about the numbers you put up, it's when you put them up, and that was certainly the case. Yeah, and like Stetson Bennett didn't even start the year as the Bulldogs' starting quarterback. You know, it was JT Daniels, and he played the first game of the season against Clemson, and you know, really JT Daniels, he, he suffered through a little bit of injury problems this year, and him and Stetson uh, kind of split time this year, but ultimately the you know coaching staff decided to go with Stetson Bennett because they believed that he was the guy that could lead the team and not make mistakes and and get the job done and and a lot of people especially after that SEC championship were really questioning on whether or not Stetson Bennett was the guy that could lead Georgia to the national championship and it's great to see Stetson overcome that fumble in the in the national championship game throw those two late touchdowns and really yeah solidify that win for for georgia what a what a season what a college football career for him Uh, we'll we'll see what's next i mean he's not going to be a high draft pick he might not be drafted but nonetheless he's already made it a lot further than a lot of people thought and and i really felt that like i said i'm a bandwagon alabama guy there's a lot of people that hate alabama i get it it's like Mm -hmm. hating the patriots or the the bulls back in the 90s when they were just killing everyone yeah but 
in the end, I, I do think this was the more interesting result. Um, well, unless you're an Alabama fan, but I do think that this was the more interesting result for college football in general. And frankly, I was joking with you that had Alabama beaten or especially blown out Georgia again, I thought that they should be forced to play in the NFL next season <laughs> and uh, the Detroit Lions should have been relegated just like it is, they would have been in European soccer. That cheeky statement, but yeah, I don't know, I'm glad that, you know, like Alabama won last year. They will certainly not go away, but it, you know, you got to feel good for Georgia, especially given the fact that the Atlanta Falcons really haven't done <laughs> a whole lot since the 28-3 collapse in the Super Bowl about five years ago. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And, you know, this was kind of the go-for-it year for the Bulldogs for Georgia. You know, they have N'Kobe Dean, who's going to be a high pick, uh, you know, Jordan Davis, who's going to be a really high pick, who's going to go high. And, you know, a lot of their best players are juniors, seniors, seniors, and they're not going to be able to return. Lots of Alabama players that played, like Bryce Young, Will mm-hmm. Anderson, they're going to come back and they're going to be even better next year. And Alabama is going to be loaded once again. Well, speaking of loaded, Los Angeles Rams are fairly loaded in the NFL. And one of the guys that they got just won the receiving triple crown. That guy's name is DK Metcalf. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's not. It's actually Cooper Cup. And the reason why I transition that way is because near the start of the season, I saw an Instagram graphic that said, hey, would you rather have Cooper Cup or DK Metcalf? And I, I remember joking to you like, oh, what is kind of question is this? You got a, you got some generic white guy against a <laughs> literal super soldier? Now, I understand Cooper Cup is not just some guy. He was already a, a very good receiver, but at that point, he hadn't really elevated himself, I don't think, to being you know that, that top five NFL receivers echelon, although he was certainly certainly an established guy in that Rams locker room. And this year, he, well, first of all, he gets to play with Matthew Stafford, mm-hmm. whose arm talent and overall talent is finally no longer imprisoned in Detroit. And he got to play as part of a very, a very good offense. And what we mean when we say receiving Triple Crown is he, for the first time since 2005, I believe, outright led the NFL in the three major receiving categories, which is receiving yards, 1,947, receiving touchdowns, 16, and receptions, 145. And as I just said, it's really hard to dominate every single one of, of those categories because you, know, you have a guy like Megatron, who, by the way, His single-season receiving record of 1,964 yards still stands, but he he never really was that close to the sort of the the receiving title because Megatron, Calvin Johnson of Detroit, was such an explosive receiver that the way he got those yards was just by burning people down the field. Where where while where Cooper Cup, one of the his strengths is that he can run every route in the route tree and some routes that probably some offenses don't even have in their route tree and that's why he was such a workhorse for for the rams and and you know from a guy who came from like i I didn't even realize this cooper cup came out of the football championship subdivision Mm -hmm. playing for eastern washington and what this means is that cooper cup played for the bottom tier 
of NCAA Division I football. The top tier is called the Football Bowl Subdivision, and if you're not familiar with college football, the difference in quality between those two divisions is actually very significant. And that's why Cooper Cup was essentially, or originally he was a third-round pick. It's tough to imagine that now, given what he's done, and Mm -hmm. he's probably only going to get better from here. But not only that, you look at his combine results, like the two flashiest ones for receiver, 40-yard dash, 4.62, that's nothing to be impressed by. Vertical jump, 31 inches, that's nothing to be impressed by. And if you look at his size, about 6'2", 204, 205, like, you know, he's not 5'7", which would have been a strike against him coming into the draft, but he doesn't blow you away in terms of measurables or anything, but then you get on the field and it's just such an entirely different story, and I think it's cool just to, well, obviously Cup's ascendance has been well documented this year, but I think it's just cool to look back on his journey a little bit to think about two things. First of all, that drafting is really a crapshoot sometimes, <laughs> and it, it's fa- hindsight is like better than 2020 in a lot of these cases. But also that even in a, a physical sport like football, fundamentals and skill development are just as important, if not more important, than raw explosive athleticism or God-given physical traits. And I actually, you know, I. This actually reminds me of something Devontae Adams told the media. And Devontae Adams also, second-round pick that has now become easily a top-ten receiver in the NFL. And Devontae Adams' advice to young receivers is, don't obsess over all these exotic drills that you put on Instagram. Go run routes and catch passes because we don't do drills for a living. We catch footballs and we, we play football. And Cooper Cup is a guy that I think by his... By the evidence, he buys into that theory, and he isn't the fastest, strongest, or biggest guy, but he'll flat out run routes and get open, and he'll find some way to catch a football when you need him to. So just congratulations and a well-deserved season for him. Yeah, no, great to see it. And like you mentioned, like the NFL Triple Crown, the receiving yards, the receptions, and the touchdowns, there have only been a handful of players that have done it in the Super Bowl era. Jerry Rice did it in 1990. Sterling Sharp did it in 1992. And Steve Smith did it in 2005. But there's a little bit of an asterisk there just because uh, Steve Smith in 2005, he was tied in receptions and reception touchdowns. So he didn't win it outright. So technically, since the 1990s and since the Super Bowl era, Cooper Cup is the third receiver to win it outright since then. And, you know, Jerry Rice, he's the greatest receiver of all time. And if it wasn't for a couple of really bad injuries, Sterling Sharp would be in the Hall of Fame. You know, his brother Shannon, tight end for the Broncos, he made the Hall of Fame. In his uh, Hall of Fame speech, Shannon mentioned, like, he has the very weird but great honor to be the only member of his family recommended into the NFL Hall of Fame, but he was the second best football player in his family, citing his brother as always being better than him, and he was always looking up to his older brother in that way. But, you know, Cooper Cup, he's been excellent this year. He's had an awesome opportunity to show that, you know, what he can really do. He tore his ACL uh, either last year or a couple of seasons ago. So it's great to see that that hasn't uh, inhibited him in many ways in terms of running and running the routes. Because, you know, as someone who has also had an ACL injury, I can understand how difficult that is to come back from. 
And yeah, like you mentioned, route running is so important. And I, I'll never forget, it was the 2015 draft, which is the Amari Cooper draft, where um, Amari Cooper was taken fourth overall by the Raiders. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, everybody had Kevin White scheduled to go ahead of Amari Cooper because Kevin White was bigger, faster, stronger, coming out of West Virginia, and he had all the raw physical tools. And unfortunately, Kevin White had some injury problems. Some? How about a lot? (laughs) I guess he had quite a few. But even still, with all those injury problems, Kevin White was never able to make an impact on the field. And Amari Cooper was a very good receiver immediately. Because Granted, of his, he had some drop issues, but other than that... He was able to get open, largely because of his route running. And I think that route running is one of the most underrated parts about being a wide receiver. Because it's really easy to make catches once you're open, but it's not so easy to always get open, especially in the NFL. Yeah, certainly. And with that ACL injury, I was it kind of reminds me of that point, right? Like, if a guy like Tyreek Hill tears his ACL bad it might affect him more just because speed and raw athleticism is such a big part of the game for a guy like that. But Cooper Cup, you know, he ran a 4-6 healthy, (laughs) but that doesn't inhibit him from being an effective receiver because he doesn't rely on speed or athleticism necessarily. He relies on fundamentals and and reliable hands and, and skills and and I think that's also why, you know, a guy like Tom Brady, now, now, you know, obviously Brady has some luck on his side that he only had the one ACL tear and his body's held up, but guys like Brady and Cooper Cup don't rely on their athleticism. They rely on their fundamentals and their skills, and that really helps them out. And, you know, hopefully, well, you know, we'll, we'll see what DK Metcalf ends up doing next season. You know, Russell Wilson might not even be back in Seattle, yada, yada, yada. But, yeah, anyways, much deserved to Coop, much, much, Props, I should say, to Cooper Cup and and much props as well to T.J. Watt, who now has tied for the single season sack record, 22 and a half quarterback takedowns. Michael Strahan was the last guy to ever do it, and mm-hmm. and in bringing that up, like I believe that I think T.J. Watt was part of a Pittsburgh Steeler pass rush core that led the league in sacks, despite the fact that the Steelers literally might have missed the playoffs if the Raiders and the mm-hmm. LA Chargers had tied. And that was its own adventurous story that has been well documented. But I think the TJ Watt issue brings to brings to my mind an interesting technicality that affects at least a few other records in football. And it's the fact that oh, TJ Watt, technically, he tied Strahan sack record in a longer season. The NFL season was extended to 17 games this year. It was 16 games for the longest time before that, including when Strahan broke the record. And yet, if you take a closer look, TJ Watt reached 22 and a half sacks in 15 games, which is one fewer than Michael Strahan played in. Mm -hmm. And so if we're just going to evaluate this fairly, I think nobody should be talking about how it's a longer season because it literally doesn't matter. TJ Watt didn't play in every game and that just didn't, that didn't even stop him from, from tying a a very, a very prolific record. But yeah, you were also saying that it's not just sacks that's kind of affected by this technicality. It's also rushing yards with OJ Simpson and Eric Dickerson. Yeah, you know, O.J. Simpson, obviously, he had his issues off the, off the field many years after his career. But O.J. Simpson had an excellent career 
in the 70s where he had a season where he rushed for 2,000 yards. And that was the record, I believe. And, and later on, Eric Dickerson broke the record for, you know, rushing yards in a singular season. But uh, nobody talks about O.J. Simpson's record, partially because of all of the off-field things and, you know, his, you know, going to prison and everything in the 80s. But, you know, everybody kind of forgets that O.J. Simpson did 2,000 yards in a season where there was only 14 games. And Eric Dickerson's 2,000-yard season came in a season with 16 games. So when you compare the two, it's actually a lot more impressive that O.J. Simpson ran for 2,000 in less games. But it's ultimately kind of forgotten, partially because of everything that happened with O.J. Simpson and the murder trials and everything. And he kind of became a more of a pop culture figure rather than a NFL superstar. But also because it's really hard to look at, like, the yards per game at record versus you know the singular season total it's a lot easier to just go okay who had the most touchdowns or who had the most receiving yards in one season and that's the best rushing season i think it's a little bit more nuanced than that especially when you look at like the older players with the shorter seasons and that kind of stuff and i think it's important context when you're comparing players from different eras especially like we are with tj watt and michael strahan yeah, and I, I do think that it, it's worth the, the attention to detail is worth noting, and that you know I, I do wish that any serious discussion of these kinds of records would be asterisked and qualified just a little more, just to be like remind people that hey, don't especially younger people like you know like O.G. Simpson and Eric Dickerson are both before our time, but. It's really easy to Google. Oh, Dickerson has the record, mm-hmm. and but it takes a bit more uh, attention to detail to realize. Oh, but O.J. Simpson hit 2,000 yards in only 14 games, which is just as impressive, if not a little bit more impressive. So, yeah, I just thought that was kind of interesting to take note of. But obviously, well, another thing to take note of that's much le- much more obvious is that the Watt family has excellent football genes and excellent football scenes. Oh, congratulations to TJ. It's also kind of tough to believe he fell to the bottom of the first round back in in 2017, but you know what? Here we go. The Steelers are going to play the Kansas City Chiefs. Ben Roethlisberger went on record even saying that they don't have a chance, so let's just go have some fun. That's an interesting thing to say as the the, the lead quarterback. But, <laughs> hey, it's going to be a lot of other interesting matchups. Like, I personally am wanting to see what the Eagles can do against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And you know, if an upset happened, it would light Twitter on fire there. Oh, it definitely would. And it would be an absolutely fascinating story for the Eagles that year, especially because a lot of people were saying that the Eagles aren't a very good team. They're going to finish near the bottom and they're going to draft a quarterback. And now because they made the playoffs and Jalen Hurts played a very good season this year, it looks like Philadelphia might've found their next quarterback. And if he plays well in these playoffs, anything is possible. Really? You know, the Packers made a Super Bowl run after being a wild card team themselves in 2000 and 10 I believe maybe it was 2011 but anyways that that year that they won the Super Bowl they were a wild card team so you never know what's going to happen it's one game and it comes down to it and there's lots of exciting things that are going to be happening this weekend certainly now another thing that's exciting for for Toronto Raptors fans uh, is the fact that Scotty Barnes has thus far proven worthy of the trust that the front office put in him when when they drafted him, I be, I believe it's 
Oh, when when did Scotty Barnes go, Tyson? This is eluding me. He went fourth overall. Fourth overall, right. When, of course, Toronto had a shot at high-flying guard Jalen Suggs. And I remember us talking about this in an earlier episode that you weren't a huge fan of the pick because... You argue that it's a it's a guard driven league, and certainly I think there's a little bit of credence that you know guys like Curry, James Harden, like all these incredibly talented backcourt players making their impact on the league. But I think Raptors fans are, are very happy to see what young Scotty Barnes is doing. If we take a quick look back at his scouting report, we see that he you know he's an intelligent, high effort player with defensive versatility and. But he wasn't necessarily a great scorer, and that was one of the biggest weaknesses of his game. Scotty Barnes, so far in his rookie season, is averaging 14.7 points per game, 8 rebounds, and 3.5 assists a game. He's shooting 48.2% from the field and hitting his free throws at just over 71%. That's pretty good for a guy in his rookie year, and he really has been making an impact all over the court. Yeah, he really has, and he's been a really good bright spot for the Raptors, especially with, I think, the philosophy that the Raptors want to do and how they want to play. And just for comparison, you know, Jalen Suggs, he's gotten, you know, about 12 points a game, three and a half rebounds, three and a half assists on about 34% shooting from the field. So not quite as good. It looks like overall this year, Scotty Barnes is definitely having the better season when you compare the two between uh, Jalen and Scotty. So it's really good to see Scotty proving me wrong and proving others right in the front office for taking him over Jalen Suggs. And I love to see that. And, you know, as a Raptors fan, I'll happily be proven wrong about anything that happens in Scotty Barnes' career for the rest of my life as long as he becomes a great player for us. But, yeah, I really like the way that Scotty Barnes is progressing and how he fits into the overall team scheme that the Raptors are trying to play into. And another encouraging sign is that not only is Barnes averaging a pretty decent scoring clip, his percentages, uh, like I said, are really nice. Not just the overall field goal percentage, but the fact that as of earlier this month, he was hitting 53% on mid-range jump shots at about 16 feet range, Mm. which is none too shabby, and close to 36% on the 64 three-point shots that he's taken. Uh, That number's a bit higher now. It's probably in in the 70s, but... But yeah, both those percentages are are pretty good. They're they're better than the league average. And for a guy who was criticized for not being a great scorer, it's a very encouraging sign midway through the season. Yeah, no, it's great. And the Raptors coaching staff is really happy with Scotty Barnes. They're trusting him. They're putting him in situations uh, where they want him to succeed in. One area that I think that I would like to see Scotty Barnes improve in more is taking more threes specifically just because I know that, you know, he has a great shooting stroke, he, and he can he's proven that he can hit shots from mid-range, 16 feet out. I want to see him be able to stretch that floor, play a part of a, a, a different style a little bit in terms of, you know, playing out past the three-point line, becoming that, you know, deep threat, and being able to score from, from range really will help elevate the overall team game and what things that they want to do with spacing, overall personnel that they want to have on the court, at once so i want to see scotty improve in that area a little bit more but you know he's still a rookie he's still got a long ways to go but he's shown a lot of promise and i'm happy with what i'm seeing and you know hopefully scotty barnes can really 
be a bright spot this season for the Raptors. And, you know, we're sitting in the eighth spot right now. So right now that's currently in the play-in series where before the play-in we would have been holding on to that last playoff spot. So we're in a good spot to be in a position to make the playoffs. It's just got to finish that home stretch out right now. And doing a bit of research, I I look back on an earlier game from about December 15th where the Raptors lost to the Brooklyn Nets in overtime. And the reason why I bring this up now is that uh, The Athletic, thank you, you're a great sports publication. <laughs> the Athletic brought to my attention that at that point in time, Scotty Barnes, essentially in the second half in overtime this game, he guarded Kevin Durant for most of the game. And he had 18 points on 6 for 12 shooting and 10 rebounds. Durant had 19 points on 7 for 17 shooting in this matchup in the second half and overtime of that game. Translation, he took on one of the best players in the NBA and held his own as a rookie. That is a very encouraging sign that he could build off of. Absolutely. You know, especially with his defense and Kevin Durant, he's one of the great players. He's 6'11". Scotty Barnes is only 6'7", but, you know, Kevin Durant, obviously, he's not a, a big. He likes to play more on the wing. So it's great to see Scotty be able to go up against him, hold him to whatever, you know. like 7 be, for 17. Yeah, right. So that that's a really great stat line for Scotty to hold him to. So, um, yeah, it's good to see, good to show promise. And especially with the Raptors wanting to play kind of more of a, a traditional or, sorry, a non-traditional style of basketball, which is uh, positionless basketball where you have lots of movement, you know, players cutting from one side to the other, being able to hit from three while also being able to create mismatches wherever you need them to be. I think Scotty's going to be a really good fit in Toronto. And I think that you know, Nick Nurse, he's got a lot of great ideas on how to deploy him, how to use him, and it's just building his confidence, getting better every day, and, yeah, growing as a team. Yeah, well, we'll certainly, we certainly hope that the Raptors can – continue this push especially now that fred van bleed has established himself as an all-star caliber guard mm -hmm. i think that also lessens the blow of not trading jalen i mean not drafting jalen sugg significantly because fred's really coming to his own here averaging what was it 22 points a game just under five rebounds and 6.6 .6 assists he was named uh, eastern conference player of the week for the mm -hmm. first time earlier this week uh, he's a fan favorite in Toronto. He's a great all-round guard, and you know we'll we'll see uh, what the Raptors will do uh, down the stretch. And I think now I'd like to pivot to use a basketball pun. I like to pivot to mm -hmm. a different sport now, the the sport of hockey, where we're gonna finish off our our conversation. And first of all, Tyson, as a Calgary Flames fan, it amuses me that three years later we won the Milan Lucic for James <laughs> Neal trade. Now. Both guys are being paid, I think, north of $5.5 million a year, which is definitely too much when you look at it. Lucic is over six. Lucic is over six. Wow, that's even worse. But <laughs> uh, the, the silver lining, I, th I think, is this, that when the trade first happened, prevailing opinion was that the Oilers won that trade or that they even ripped off Calgary because, you know, in Calgary, the optics of it were we failed – to utilize this 20 to 30 goal scorer to his potential while Milan Lucic was struggling to be a relevant top six forward in Edmonton. And he just, he just didn't, didn't have the speed or the skill to play with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. 
And when you look at that trade, it's been three seasons since then. And James Neal, yeah, he did score 19 goals and 31 points in 55 games in Edmonton in his first season there. That's pretty good. That was in a COVID-shortened season, In too. a COVID-shortened season. that Probably easy 25, maybe even 30-goal pace in a full season. Milan Lucic, that same year... Put up eight goals and 20 points in 68 games. So you're like, okay, well, duh, right? James Neal scored more. He's more skilled. He played with better talent. Cool, right? That's, you know, no, not really too surprising of a result. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that then you look the next season and James Neal scored 10 points in 29 games, which is uh, <clears throat> not a 30-goal pace no. by any stretch of the imagination. And this year, the year after that, he scored a mere four points in 17 games for the St. Louis Blues before being demoted to the taxi squad. Translation, James Neal is not the 20-30 goal power forward that he once was. And Just a quick note, James Neal is on St. Louis not because of a trade. He was bought out. Ah, yes. To add insult to injury there. Yeah, he he's, he's lost it, and he's obviously an older player so you know we can't we can't be too surprised at that everybody wears out and you know, at 34 years of age James just doesn't have the athleticism or the skills that he that he once did what I think makes this narrative slightly interesting is the fact that Milan Lucic in this period of time has remained an everyday NHL player he's a bottom six guy for sure like he is not the 20 goal 50 point power forward that the Boston Bruins had in the early 2010s by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, last year he scored 10 goals and 23 points in 56 games, the the COVID year. And, you know, and while bringing veteran leadership and physicality and toughness to the team. And this year he's currently got eight points, eight goals rather, and 13 points in 33 games while still bringing the toughness and the size that he, he always had. And so... Are both players overpaid? Yeah, absolutely. But it, it's it's funny and, and, and ironic to, to see that Milan Lucic, at the end of the day, is still a relevant NHL player. James Neal is not. And with both those contracts being difficult to have on the books, mm-hmm. Lucic has brought more value. I think so. But I, I also want to say it's I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I want to say that I personally don't believe that Milan Lucic would have had success in Edmonton as a bottom six forward. No, I don't think he would have. Right, because like he was brought in to be a top six winger, to play with McDavid or Dreisaitl as kind of that power forward on the wing style of player, right? And that's what they wanted, and that's why they paid him $6.5 million a season for seven years, which is a really big contract, but that's what they needed, and that's what they wanted from him. And to take that expectation and go, okay, we realize that you're overpaid. We realize that we gave you this contract, but you're not the player that we're paying you to be. So we need to revalue our expectations from you and say, okay, what can we actually expect from you as a player that we're like that we have right now? And we're going to only expect you to be a bottom six forward. That's what needed to happen. I don't think the Oilers could ever do that because the Oilers had all of these expectations. The fans were all over Lucic and Edmonton. They hated him. They couldn't stand him. My dad, he's an Oilers fan, still hates Lucic to this day and can't stand him at all. And, you know, Lucic, 
ultimately, I don't think that he would have had success in his career being a bottom six player in Edmonton, even though it would have been kind of the same role. I think just for everybody's sake, he needed to get out of there and he needed to go somewhere else in order to have success. Here's where I think it's a little bit more nuanced, specifically in the James Neal conversation, is that the part of the reason why the Oilers traded for James Neal is because the Milan-Lucic contract is essentially buyout-proof. Um, that means that most of the money that is in Milan-Lucic's contract is in signing bonus, which basically means that he's going to receive no matter what, or he's already got it. So Milan Lucic, a large sum of his money has been promised to him. They can't save any money against the cap by buying him out. It's just how much money do you want to allocate every year? So the Oilers, they needed cap space, especially with, you know, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl having those long contracts. And they had Zach Hyman or coming in and, and they had... And of course, Duncan Keith at five and a half. Well, they had, they had, they wanted to do all of this stuff with more cap, and they didn't have it. So they looked down the line. They said, "Okay, Nugent Hopkins is coming up, and we want to make moves and add to our defense. And Darnell Nurse is going to need a big contract in a few years. We need to get out of this Lucic contract, and the best way we can do that is to trade him for a player that we can buy out. And James Neal's contract, it wasn't buyout friendly, but it was a much better buyout than." Lucic's contract would have been, and Lucic is essentially not buyout proof. Like, you can't buy it out. There's no point to it. But by buying out Neil's contract, the Oilers were able to save a little bit of money on the cap that they could then spend on other areas, which is like bringing in Zach Hyman, keeping Ryan Nugent Hopkins, adding money to, and giving it to Darnell Nurse, that kind of stuff. So I think it's a little bit nuanced because I think Edmonton overall, they achieved what they wanted to achieve with James Neal, get a little bit of production, buy out the rest of the contracts that way they can use that money and elsewhere and Calgary got a player that they can use in their roster every single night I think this is a a mostly a win-win I think obviously especially when you look at what Edmonton has done with their cap space giving Duncan Keith five and a half million dollars in a trade that's still a head scratcher yeah I I think that when you look at it, you can kind of go, okay, maybe I think the Calgary Flames got the better end of the steal, even though they still have a five million dollar cap hit in James or in Milan Lucic because the Oilers, once again, they're retaining some salary from the Milan Lucic trade, so the Oilers are still paying out some money to Lucic, but they still the, the Flames are still paying over five million dollars to Lucic to be on a fourth line, which is tough. That's tough. It's tough for any team, but. Hey, he's able to contribute. He knows his role. He's not in a with a team with a fan base where there's terribly high expectations like it was in Edmonton. And I think that being able to see his numbers a little bit revitalize in Calgary just shows that he just needed to get out of Edmonton. And it's uh, I think those are really good points. And it's also worth noting Daryl Sutter loves this kind of player. Mm. Lucic is big, physical, meat and potatoes. And he, he knows his role and he's going to fulfill it. And he's not some, you know little scoring winger that doesn't want to do the dirty work well, and to that point didn't Lucic play for Sutter when he was in LA because yeah. Sutter coached in LA in around 2015 right and I think that's when Lucic played I'm not sure if they match up exactly but I, I think I think that they might know each other at least a little bit from playing with each other in fact Lucic did spend a, a, about half a season or so with the LA Kings so Daryl Sutter knows him and, and that's something that you know, can definitely help with his game. 
And, and to finish off tonight's episode, uh, you and I found ourselves on opposite sides of the fence on a very interesting question that the Sportsnet social media account uh, posed in terms of hockey. And so the hypothetical scenario is this. You've got two lineups of five skaters and a goalie. One of them is over 30 years of age, and the other one is under 24. They're talent on both sides, question marks a goalie on both sides, but... I think it's a really interesting uh, thought exercise, and I, you know, I would give credit to the Sportsnet social media team for throwing this out there because I am know for a fact that many other hockey fans have been debating this with each other. But all right, but so here's the scenario, folks. So on the on age 24 and under team, you've got superstars like Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, Kirill Kaprizov, Kale McCarr, Adam Fox, and Washington's Ilya Samsonov in net, who is probably the late least known of those names. Age 30 and over, uh, some guy named Crosby, some guy named Ovechkin, Patrick Kane, Victor Hedman, John Carlson, and Sergei Bobrovsky. And the question is, which team are you taking? And so I just want to qualify this by saying two things, is that first of all, if you're wanting to build a franchise in the long term, you would obviously take the younger players because they're younger. I chose to look at it as a if you are a team that wants to win a cup within the next few years, which you're taking that that's that's the I think that's makes it more interesting. I think obviously if you're going to build a new franchise, you're going to take the younger guys because they're way younger. Mm -hmm. the The other thing is that uh, the other thing that I think uh, we need to acknowledge is that you know. Obviously, there's superstar talent on on both teams. You'd be you'd be happy with either, uh, especially if you wanted to win now. And but yeah, so you took the younger guys, mm -hmm. and I took the older guys, and so just very very arbitrarily as the host of this podcast, I'm gonna make you go first. No. And uh, yeah, if you want to, you know, explain. You know, you take. Why, why do you take the younger guys, many of which are unproven in the playoffs, over these older guys that are also incredibly skilled but have actually won it all? So my opinion is that you're being incredibly nostalgic in looking at all of these old guys' careers and like looking at... You're correct. I would take Jerome McGinley right now <laughs> over Kirill Kaprizov. Anything, I'm not really. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. You know, looking at these old guys, like, yes, they've had great careers, Crosby is still a very good player, and Ovechkin still can score at a very high level. Very good player. But the talent disparity for me between the U24 team and the over-30 team is so wide, I can't ignore it. And, like, I just want to tackle the goalie issue a little bit first. Like, Ilya Samsonov... By no means is he a finished project. I, I totally understand that. He's a young goalie. He has a lot of promise. He was a first-round draft pick. He has some skills. And, you know, he's shown that he can be a good, capable starting goaltender for Washington, which is a contending cup team. And then you have the over-30 goalie, which is Ilya Briz Or, sorry, not Ilya Brzezkov. Not quite that bad. <laughs> Sergei Bobrovsky. But, you know, Bobrovsky, just kind of like Brzezgalov, can let in eight goals in a game or he can absolutely shut the door and be unbeatable. So I think that there's so much in like unknown when it comes to Bobrovsky that I, I don't want any team that really comes with Bobrovsky if I'm going to be fully honest. Um, but when it comes to the five players, like the five skaters, mm -hmm. 
I look at it and I go, okay, I get McDavid and Austin Matthews. Those are two out of the top three NHL players right now. My ranking, and I'm, this is my ranking, my ranking is number one McDavid, number two Matthews, number three McKinnon, and then number four Crosby. I'm willing to have a conversation about my Crosby over McKinnon. I'm also willing to have a conversation on whether or not I'm overvaluing Matthews as a Maple Leafs fan. Yes. I'm, I'm willing to have those conversations. But that's my ranking and that's my belief is that I'm having the top two players in the NHL right now on my team. Kirill Kaprizov himself as a winger is single-handedly making Minnesota relevant. And I think that... You know, he's he was this bright young player coming out of nowhere, coming out of the KHL. Fifth round pick for the Minnesota Wild because they knew that he was going to stay in Russia for a few years. But he is so talented. And I think that Kirill Kaprizov really has the potential to kind of be an Artemi Panarin where he can really blossom, really grow in the NHL and kind of become almost a late bloomer where he put up really good numbers in the KHL. He's come over to the NHL and now he's ready to take another leap in his career. And, you know, he was a point of game player last year in the COVID year, but you know, he's been excellent this year. He's driving the Minnesota wild into playoff relevance. They've been a very good team this year as well. And I don't see any problem. I, I think that Kirill Kaprizov is a fringe top 15 player in the NHL right now and that's really good and then when you look at the defense I'm getting the best two defensemen in the NHL right now I'm getting Adam Fox the former Norris Trophy winner and I'm getting Kale McCarr this year's Norris Trophy winner like probable it hasn't happened Kale McCarr is currently on pace to score 46 goals the last defenseman to score 46 goals was Paul Coffey when he had the record, which is 48. The only other defenseman other than Paul Coffey to more, score more than 40 is Bobby Orr when he scored 46. That's where Kale McCarr is at right now this season. His peak this year as a 23-year-old is the peaks of Bobby Orr and Paul Coffey. Like, that is an incredible peak right now, if he can continue this, obviously. It's been, you know, only first 30-so games of the season. But Cam McCarr, what he's shown right now this year has been phenomenal. He has incredible skating, incredible tools. You know, McCarr, he finished second in Norris Trophy voting. I don't see any reason why I wouldn't want McCarr and Fox over Hedman and Carlson. Like... Don't get me wrong, I think Hedman's a very good defenseman. He's definitely, I think, a top three, top five defenseman in the NHL. I don't think Eric Carlson, or not Eric, John Carlson is a top ten defenseman in the NHL. I think the gap between Victor Hedman and John Carlson is a very large gap, and I don't love that. So those are my reasonings. There's so much talent on the U24 team, especially when I, I look at it like Connor McDavid, He's not as experienced as I want him to be in the playoffs, but he has won a playoff series. Makar, he's won multiple playoff series with the Avalanche. I I really like this team. They are so talented, and I don't have a problem with their experience because they they just their talent blows me away. I'm taking the U24 team any day of the week. Well, my response to that is Austin Matthews' mustache alone tanks this entire roster. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So. Uh, to respond to your points, the first thing I'll say is 
I would agree that although both of these goalies are question marks, Sergei Bobrovsky does not really inspire confidence, particularly on something like a playoff series. So I'm going to make this a little more interesting. I'm going to swap Bobrovsky for Marc-Andre Fleury, who's still old, but is still inc- very good and is coming off of Vesna, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, and so right away, I think I think that makes this more interesting. So that's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to put Marc-Andre Fleury in as my starting goaltender. The rest of my argument rests on my belief, and again, I could be wrong, but from what I have seen in, in recent years and over my tenure as a hockey fan... I don't deny the talent that's on that U24 squad. I think anybody who knows hockey would not be able to deny that. My problem with your argument, although, again, like, it's a great team. Like, I'm not saying it's at all necessarily an overrated team because it's not. My problem is that talent alone doesn't win championships and that you as a Toronto Maple Leafs fan should understand this because the Leafs, Matthews, the Oilers, McDavid, and even the Colorado Avalanche, Kale McCarr, have failed to get over the hump, the playoff hump in recent years, despite, at least in the case of the Leafs and the Avalanche, having some fairly significant depth. Like, quick, for Edmonton, sure, McDavid and Dreisaitl need help. They don't have a whole lot else on that team. And that is their obvious problem. Matthews has Taveras, Marner, Jack Campbell, Morgan Riley, like... Toronto is not the deepest team in the league, but they've got some pretty good depth. I would argue Colorado is probably the deepest of the bunch with McKinnon and Rantanen, and Makar gets to play with guys like Devon Taves and Samuel Girard, very good uh, fellow defensemen. And last year when they were bounced from the playoffs, they had Philip Grubauer, who was a Vesna finalist and a very good starting goaltender in this league, and yet they were not able to, to make it over the hump. The reasons why they didn't get there are nuanced, and in case of the Leafs, maybe they're just cursed, and Montreal (laughs) was kind of on this ridiculous roll last year. But when I look at the older team, yeah, at this stage, they're not as talented as the the, the U24s. I mean, if you DH Crosby and Ovechkin to, like, 30 years old, I think this gets real interesting. But even that aside... It seems to me that intangibles and experience and mental toughness and leadership are incredibly important when it comes to the playoffs, right? There's a lot of President's Trophy teams that win the regular season and not the playoffs. In recent memory, talented teams like the Leafs and the Avalanche have not gotten there and have, in fact, underperformed. Whereas when I look at Crosby and Ovechkin and Kane, they have six Stanley Cups between them, and all of them played very significant roles on those cup-winning teams. It's not like they were, obviously, like the 13th forward or anything. Yeah, okay, Adam Fox is the reigning Norris winner, and, uh, sorry, six, seven Cups, whatever it is. Adam Fox is a reigning Norris winner. Kale McCarr is very probably going to win it this year, sure. But the thing is, to me, they're frankly unproven. Victor Hedman is a five-time Norris, Norris finalist. He won it in 2018, but just two seasons ago, he won the Conn Smythe as the MVP of the playoffs. And unlike, excuse me, unlike McCarr and Fox, Victor Hedman actually has anchored not just one, but two back-to-back cup-winning teams. John Carlson has anchored a Stanley Cup-winning Washington Capitals team where he was a top defenseman on that unit. And so my argument is that, yeah, the U24s are, are incredibly talented, 
But they are also incredibly unproven. Like, Kirill Kaprizov hasn't touched the playoffs yet. I don't know what he's going to do in the playoffs. Kale McCarr is great, but like I said, the Avs haven't gotten there yet. Adam Fox hasn't done it yet. Austin Matthews has wilted in the playoffs before when teams played him tough. But guys like Crosby and Ovechkin, and especially like Victor Hedman is probably my favorite player on this over 30 team. They have not only held their own when the lights are brightest, but they have led their teams to the promised land. Some some of these people, you know, Crosby and, and Hedman and Kane, more than once. And so the question that I would ask is, well, you know, I, I just don't th- I'm just don't think it's a guarantee that all this raw talent necessarily transfers to the toughness and the intangibles that you need to win the Stanley Cup. Whereas on the 30 and over team, we have seen all these guys take teams to the promised land. Just first thing, first off, Kapril Kaprizov did make the playoffs last year. Ah, sorry, they pushed bad. they pushed Vegas to seven games in the mm. first round, and it was a very close first round matchup between Minnesota and Vegas. And then Vegas obviously mm. did beat Colorado my last bad. year. That's an oversight like on my part. The thing that you mentioned with Colorado is like, yes, they are a very deep team and they do have a very good deep team, but they've been hindered by goaltending a lot. Like, yes, Grubauer was a Vesna finalist last year, but a lot of the pre- people's criticisms of Grubauer is like, well, who wouldn't be a Vesna finalist with all of that great defense? Uh, Vesna Toscala well, and. Yes. You know, Henrik Carlson, and, and I mean, that, I'm being facetious. But, Any good goalie w- w- would be would have a great time behind right. that, and behind now, that team. And <laughs> now you're seeing Grubauer in Seattle, and his numbers are awful. Like, 880 save percentage, 365 goals against average. Brutal. So maybe Grubauer wasn't as good as we initially thought. The year previous, not only was Grubauer hurt, but also the backup in Pavel Francouz. Pavel Francouz. And <laughs> also the triple backup in Andrew Hammond, which meant that Michael Hutchinson had to play meaningful playoff games. Like, maybe if they have better goaltending in those series, they have a Stanley Cup final or a Stanley Cup victory. Maybe that's the case. But, like, in your argument with the Leafs, yeah, the Leafs have had some good depth, but their depth has not been as good as I think a lot of people think it is. Like, yes, there's the core four with Matthews and Marner and... and, and uh, Riley and Campbell. Well, Riley's been... Eh, he's not... Okay. Riley's not as good as a lot of people think he is. He's a very good defenseman. I don't know if he's a number one defenseman. He's definitely a, a top pair defenseman. I don't know if he's that number one guy. But, like, they have the core four of Tavares and Nylander and Matthews Marner. But, like, other than those top four, like, they're... Their team is interchangeable every year. Like, other than the core four and Ilya Mikheyev and Jason Spezza, their entire forward group is totally different because they don't have the money to be able to sign people to multiple-year contracts. So, like, just to think, like, the the Leafs, I think they're extremely top-heavy. That's the way they built their team. Same, not as top heavy as Edmonton, mind not you. as not as top heavy as Edmonton. Edmonton is the most top heavy. So I think, like obviously, if you take these teams and you put them in a playoff series, depth is a huge consideration and a huge factor. But I I like the talent on this U twenty four team. If you give both teams comparable depth, 
and you give like player like the U twenty four team the same depth as the over thirty team, which of course you would need to to make this a worthwhile thought experiment. I would absolutely take the U twenty four team because, like you mentioned, like yeah, sure they the older players they've done it, they've won cups, they have the experience. At some point in time, those older players they didn't have the experience, right? They didn't have the cup wins, they didn't have everything that they now have. They did have to go through the battles and the trials to get there, especially Ovechkin. Like, why couldn't these young guys do it too, right? Especially if you look back in 10 years from now at revisionist history and you go, oh, okay. Like, say in a few years you look back and you go, oh, McDavid's got a cup, Matthews has a cup, and Kirill Kaprizov, he doesn't have a cup, but, you know, he had an excellent playoff for Minnesota – like that changes the whole landscape of this argument because they've proven that they can have playoff success if you just give them a few more years. Yeah, I th- I think that's totally true. A- and so the way the reason why I came at it at least instinctively the way that I did was what I would like to call the fog of war in this context that yes, the the under 24s haven't been around long enough for us to actually talk about their legacies and course it would be foolish to it, it, it would be foolish to try and i'm not ruling out the possibility that you know particularly in the case of mcdavid that if the oilers could get him some defense and some goaltending right he's a special player mm-hmm. obviously austin matthews is a really talented player they all are like all of these people are albeit bobrovsky and samsonov are really uh inconsistent but to me it's just yes like the assumption that i chose to make is sort of that proven, not only the proven playoff success, but the fact that none of the people on the age 30 and over team have really started to fall off a cliff yet. I think that's very important. Like, I mean, 41-year-old Jumbo Joe Thornton is a shade of what who he usually, who he used to be, and that's why he is not going to be included in thought experiments like this, because he is too old, mm-hmm. and he's just not that good anymore. Uh, I, I don't think that you know, Crosby and Ovechkin and, well, they obviously haven't fallen off that cliff yet. So I, I don't know. Like I just, to me, I still like, I'd still like the intangibles. I've just seen a lot of really, really talented teams fall short for albeit nuanced and, and varied reasons. But if you give me all of these cups and all of this leadership in the same room, personally, I just, I just like that, and I'm willing to eat a, a, a what I see as a moderate trade-off in talent in, in order to have that. So, I don't know. That's the way I see it. I mean, and here, here's the thing is that this is the part of the podcast where I start sounding like a YouTuber, and I'm being like, hey, why do, what do you guys think? Why don't you... Uh, chime in in the comment section that does not exist for for our show because you know what i think we could go at this for a long time and uh i think one of in in our future hockey episodes where we you know we're hoping to get our friend and fellow hockey lover cam Coates back on and i'm sure that that is gonna go on for a very very long long time but yeah if if you have any if you have anything else to say uh, i'll let you say it but i think for now it's to me it's interesting just to think about, and I think the fact that I went with the older people, the older players, and you went with the younger players, kind of shows a difference in how we perceive hockey, what we've seen as as fans before, and what we kind of would instinctively lean towards. And I think a lot of sports debates among fans boil down to something like that. 
Yeah, I think you're right in in that way and saying like you know, obviously great post for from Sportsnet for for being able to spark this debate, but yeah, ultimately I think that you're gonna have your own preferences and I think that's what this is. Um, you know, give me the talent all day long because I I you know you say it's a moderate difference in in talent, I say it's quite a significant gap, but. Anyways, that's just how I view this uh, particular problem. Give me the talent all day long. <clears throat> Austin Matthews is overrated. That's the <laughs> incredibly petty way that I'm gonna I'm gonna have the last word on this. <laughs> and uh, he he my other disclaimer. I say that, and I would still root for Toronto over Montreal hey, every hey, day of the week. Hey, just remember that you had to trade Bobrovsky for Flurry in order to make this thought experiment relevant. <laughs> You know what? You're right, and I'm not even sorry. You're right. You're right. Um... <laughs> you had to break the rules in order to compete. Hey, I'm not breaking the rules. I didn't bring in Andre Vasilevsky. Well, that would have been breaking the rules. Hey, but man, like... he missed the cutoff for my U2014 by a year. Oh. See, that's... See, that's, that's why Voss really would be breaking the rules. He's in that age sweet spot, and he's a top three goaltender in the league. He's got the two cups. What, 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 whatever. I, I don't know. I think you give any of these teams Vasilevsky, and it just... It's not fair. It, it, it's, it, it's not fair unless the other team has the version of Price that we saw. Last year. Then maybe then maybe it's fair. I, I, I don't know, man. Maybe some other time we'll revisit a similar experiment. But, you know, you give one team Vasilevsky and the other team, like, prime carry Price, and we'll just take the goaltending out of, kind of out of the equation, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see what happens based on talent. But, anyways, I think that's all that we've got for you guys today. Um, let us know in our non-existent comment section. But maybe the, the Instagram uh, post that does have a comment section, if y'all want to chime in, uh, go ahead and let me know why I'm wrong. Let him know why he's wrong. Uh, keep the swearing to a minimum. This is a PG-13 uh, podcast. But anyways, until next time, this is the Draft Board, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Draft Board. Podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.